you, God. Teach us this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, have you you ever wondered uh, why life is so stressful? I mean, stress is a very common, universal human experience. But have you ever wondered, like, why is the world so stressful? Why is life so stressful? You know, I haven't ever met anybody yet uh, who could honestly tell me, no, I, I, I don't really get stressed. <laughs> we all do. Life is full of stress, but why does it exist? Why, like, what makes life stressful? A number of years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were, we were having one of those days where just everything with our kids was a bit of a struggle. Uh, it was busy. We had places to be, things to do. Blood pressure was high already. Uh, and then sometime after dinner, what needed to happen was we needed to load everybody up in the van and get somewhere at a particular time. And I don't know why. We have five kids. At, at the time, we only had three, but even still, um, and I'm not quite sure why this is, but loading kids into a van, it's like one of life's greatest struggles for us. Uh, there's a 0% chance that it's going to go well when we need to load the kids into the van and be somewhere. So this was no exception, but again, it was one of those days where already tensions are high, blood pressure's high, we got to get the kids in the van. And so my responsibility, I was tasked with getting the kids in the van, and I needed to buckle the youngest into her car seat. And again, we only had three at the time. So the older two, I gave them very clear instructions. You go in your seat, you put your seatbelt on, and you do nothing else. Just sit still. Don't fight, don't argue, don't touch each other, don't even look at each other. Just get in your car seat, put the seatbelt on, and don't move. And it almost went to plan. <laughs> Except for when I got, I finished up buckling our youngest, I got into the driver's seat, put her in reverse, started backing out of the garage, and I looked up in the rearview mirror, and I noticed one of my oldest kids had the hand in the diaper... And then pulled out the chocolate fingers. <laughs> and as they pulled out their hand, they went to make the move. They were a thumb sucker. And they went to make the move to transition to the, the thumb sucking. And I panicked. I don't know why I thought that, like, I obviously panicked. But I don't know why first instinct was just to get out of the van <laughs> jump in through the, the sliding door, and like I was going to tackle and break it up and, and make sure it didn't happen. And so and I'm like dry heaving at the time too. But I, I leap out of the van door. I swing the door open. I go to move the sliding door, and I realize, oh no, <laughs> in my moment of panic, I forgot to put the van in park. So the van is still moving, but like it shouldn't be a big deal. Like it's a pretty flat garage and it's just slowly moving back out of my garage. The issue was though, when I flung the door open, the edge of the door caught the side of my garage wall. So as the van is slowly rolling out, the door has snagged the wall and like almost immediately the door blows through the side of my house out the siding on the back side of the wall and is hanging out over my front sidewalk before I can get back in the van, put it in park, and then just shake my head. You you want to see me on the verge of a meltdown, you just look right there. It was a high, high stress situation. 
And in one sense, you could look at it and say, the reason why I was so stressed is because something bad happened. Bad things are the reason for stress in our lives. But you see, I think that would actually miss the mark. And the older I get, the more that I realize that is not the issue. Bad things are not what produce stress in my life. The reason there's so much stress in the world is that my life utterly refuses to go according to my plans. It's like no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, my life utterly refuses to cooperate with my plans. That's the real problem. You see, I can handle bad things. I can handle hard things when I plan for them. Like, I was a runner. I, like, I intentionally embraced pain every day for years of my life. Bad things aren't the issue. It's when things do not go according to my plans, that's the issue. But here's what I think has taken me a very long time to realize. The reason my life doesn't go according to my plan is that God's plan is actually unfolding. And God's plan is not my plan. Which I get confused about all the time. Like I think because I'm trying to seek the Lord and I'm trying to make good plans and godly plans, I, I, I am so confused all the time thinking my plan is God's plan. But the reason my life utterly refuses to cooperate with my plan is that my plan is being thwarted by the plan of of God. And I think I carry so much stress in life feeling like my plan is God's plan and when things don't go according to my plan, the plan of God is somehow being thwarted. But here's the big idea from our passage in Genesis 14. The big idea is this, God's plan is unfolding, not yours, and you can trust his plan. God's plan is actually unfolding in your life, and in the world. And you can trust his plan. And to be honest, you, you should not trust your own plans. doesn't mean we shouldn't have plans or make plans or seek the Lord in our plans, but we should not have our hope in our own plans. We need to trust God's unfolding plan even when it doesn't look anything like what we expected. And we're going to find that lesson as we dig into Genesis chapter 14 today. But before we do that, we need to reset the table a little bit here and just figure out where have we been and where are we in the book of Genesis. Okay, so about eight months ago, we started this journey into the book of Genesis. And right away, we said the book of Genesis, it's, it's not a science textbook written by a scientist. That's not what we have in Genesis. Yes, it, it states some truth that gets us into a few scientific conversations, but it's not a science textbook. Instead, the book of Genesis, it's a, it's a history of the world designed by God to reveal the Lord himself to us and also to introduce us to his plan of salvation, to save us, to rescue us from under the curse of our own sin and from under his wrath. That's what the book of Genesis is, and it was written by a man named Moses, who was a wonderful man of God. But before we ever get to Moses, we're introduced to several very significant people in the book of Genesis. The first of which being Adam and Eve. 
The very first people that God created, Adam and Eve, very significant figures in the book of Genesis. And we see that God created Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and he placed them into the Garden of Eden. And then he tells us right away his purpose for creating human beings. He says, you are to cultivate this land that I've given you. Cultivate it. And you are to rule over my creation. And as you do that, you are to bear my image and be fruitful and multiply throughout all of the world. God says, I I want you to be fruitful and multiply. That the glorious image of God would be scattered all throughout the world. He tells us the purpose in creating human beings, but it did not take long for things to go horribly awry in the garden, as we remember. Because Adam and Eve, who did they listen to? The serpent. Not to God. They didn't listen to God and His purpose for them. They are deceived by the serpent. And in that, they step into sin. And in their sin... They bring not only death into the world, but also the sin nature into humanity. They are judged by God. They are kicked out of the garden, expelled from the garden. They lose their relationship with God and the hope of eternal life. And the whole world plunges into sin with them. Their son Cain murders his brother Abel. And it's like everybody just kind of follows suit. The whole world goes into chaos very quickly. And God comes and he brings judgment to the world through the flood. God pronounces his judgment in advance. And then his judgment comes. And the whole world is killed through the flood. Except for Noah and his family. Who embraced the one means of salvation that God had prescribed. Which was the ark. They stepped into the ark. They were protected against God's wrath. And after the flood, everyone has been killed except for Noah and his family. It provides this opportunity really for a restart, a reboot. And yet, it doesn't take long for sin to once again rear its ugly head. They step into sin. They have not lost their sin nature And the whole world steps into sin with them. And this time the whole world unites in their sin and in their rebellion and in the rejection of the authority of God at the Tower of Babel. The whole world unites together in rejection of God's authority. They determine to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel. And so God's judgment once again comes on the world. But this time he doesn't bring a flood. He had promised he would not... Judge them again through a flood. And so instead of a flood, instead of killing them, this time what God does is he scatters them into every corner of the world and he confuses their languages. And so he sends them out into all kinds of nations and peoples and languages over all of the world. That's what God does in judgment of the people. He scatters them throughout the world in all kinds of nations, peoples, and tongues. And on the heels of that judgment, where God has scattered the nations... God then comes to Abram or Abraham and he gives him promises that have implications not just for Abraham alone, but for every single nation and people and tongue that he has just scattered in his judgment. And this is the promise that he gives him. It has implications for everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. It says this, he starts with a command. He says, go from your land. 
It's a call to action. Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who comes to you with, uh, treats you with contempt. And all of the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Every nation, all the nations, all these peoples that I have just judged and scattered. Abraham, I, I am actually going to work blessing to them through you. And they will not remain scattered forever, but instead... People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, they will be brought back together. This time, though, not in unity, in rebellion against God, but they will be brought back together in unity under the authority of God and in eternal life. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to be working my promise squarely through you to be a blessing. I will bless you. You will be great and you will be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. It's an incredible promise of God that throughout the rest of the scriptures, we get to see God's glorious plan unfolding ultimately through the person of Christ. And we pick things up here in Genesis chapter 14. We're stepping into the life of Abraham and and into the unfolding plan of God in order to do that. That that Abraham would be a great blessing and a blessing to all the nations, that all the nations would ultimately be back under the authority of God, united under the authority of God in eternal life. Okay, and we pick things up in Genesis 14 at a time in Abraham's life where he has become incredibly prosperous. So prosperous, in fact, that Abraham and his nephew Lot, they they have so many people and animals and things that they can't even share the same space. They can't even occupy the same land together. So they have gone separate ways, Lot to the east, which is always bad news bears in the book of Genesis, to a city by the name of Sodom. You may have heard of it before. And Abraham has gone west to the land of Canaan. The land, this is the very land that God had promised him. And he's there worshiping God. He has built an altar to the Lord. He's, he's just gloriously calling on the name of the Lord. And he is prosperous and wealthy. And he's just waiting for God to deliver His promises for blessing to the nations through him. And then this is what happens in Genesis 14. Okay? In those days, remember our background here. In those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, waged war against Birah, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came. And they defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kurnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade and Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Malachites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. 
Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bilah, that is Zoar, they went out and they lined up for battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. But the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food. And they went on and they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. For he was living in Sodom. And they went on. Now, that passage obviously is a mouthful. One challenge for you this week, if you want, just try to read that passage five times fast. It's great. But it's a little bit hard to keep track of everything that's going on, in part because there are so many names and battles that we're probably not super familiar with. But, but one thing that's obvious as you work through that passage is it's like the whole world seems to be at war with each other. And there are a number of facts on the ground that I want to walk through with you to help us just understand and grasp what is happening here. Number one, we need to keep in mind the specific Background and promises that that Abraham has been given and is holding on to as all of this stuff starts to unfold around him right in his own backyard. Okay, God had promised this land to Abraham, which is now filled with war. And not only that, but God had promised Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all of the nations. And, And there's this idea with that, that the nations, they're going to be blessed through Abraham by being brought back under the authority of God. In real life, under the authority of God. And Abraham is just in the land that God has promised, worshiping God at the altar, waiting for all of that to to happen and to unfold and take place. But then, the first recorded war in the Bible breaks out. You see, you and I might be a little bit desensitized to the idea of war in a foreign land. But I've got to imagine, this was a startling experience. It's the first recorded war in the Bible, and it probably felt like World War I. Like everybody in the world has suddenly decided to go out and slaughter each other. And as they're doing that, as war is raging all around them in this land that God has promised to Abraham, his nephew Lot, who I am certain Abraham cared very deeply for, He's caught in the crossfire. And he gets taken as plunder when the city of Sodom falls. Now, see, as we come to this passage, the fact that this war doesn't affect me personally, and it happened thousands of years ago with all these people that I don't know, can barely pronounce... And I already know the ending. I, I, like, I know how, how this all plays out. Those, those facts, see, they shape how I experience the text and how I interpret what's happening here. I don't feel the stress of this situation. But I'll just tell you, when, when it's you or it's your family member who is caught in a war in a faraway land... War breaks out around them. It's not a minor situation. It is not low stress. It is incredibly high stress. As many of you 
No, a very close family member of mine was recently caught in the middle of a significant military conflict overseas. And when that happens, it's not the same as just reading a list of random names and random battles from thousands of years ago. It wasn't that for Abraham and for his family. It's, it's 24-7, all hands on deck. It is sleepless nights. It is desperate prayer. It is desperate means to try to do anything you can to get them out of harm's way and into safety. It is extremely high stress, high chaos, and the last thing it feels like is this all playing out according to God's plan. You see, when, when war breaks out all around Abraham and Lot, it's a very high stress, and it challenges everything that you've been assuming that God is doing through your life. You see, in life we have plans, and when we receive a mission from God, we make plans in order to see that mission of God fulfilled. And Abraham, no doubt has received and understood this beautiful mission of God that that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations, that he's going to be brought under the authority of God. And there's no doubt that he has made plans in order to walk in the mission of God and in the plan of God. But you see, when, when this war breaks out, it's like, how is God going to deliver on his promise to bless the nations through me? When all of my plans have just been totally uprooted and destroyed, by this unexpected, unplanned variable. How in the world is God going to use my life to bless the nations when war just crushed everything that I've worked for? How is God going to bless the nations when my life is in danger and now I'm displaced? And you see, this is the time when it starts to feel like God's plan is being thwarted. When we've really sought the Lord, when we've understood His mission, when, when, when our lives were trying hard to seek Him and to sync up our plan with His will, and then everything gets crushed, or thrown into chaos... This is exactly the time when it begins to feel like God's plans are being thwarted by the enemy, by the world, by life. And you see, the last time that Abraham was in a situation like this, Abraham, he did not trust God. In Genesis chapter 12, right after Abraham receives these plans from, or these promises from the Lord and this call to go to the land, he does it. And when he arrives in the land, there's a famine in the land immediately, I'm sure, challenging Abraham's assumptions about exactly how this plan of God was going to unfold. And what Abraham did is he went to Egypt in pursuit of food, looking for food to get through the famine. But when he gets to to Egypt, he realizes, wait a minute, these Egyptians, they may not be friendly. And I have a beautiful wife, 
And I'm afraid that maybe they're going to kill me so they can get to her. So what Abraham does, rather than responding in faith, rather than trusting God through this situation, what Abraham does in Genesis 12 is he thinks to himself, they might kill me. So I'm going to deceive them and tell them that my wife is actually my sister, which weirdly enough, she actually was. But he neglects to tell them that she's also his wife. And basically, he just hands his wife over to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, puts her in harm's way in order to protect his own skin. Because he didn't trust the Lord. And he was only thinking about himself. So he acts deceptively. He acts selfishly. He puts his wife in harm's way. And not only that, but he becomes a curse to the Egyptians when he was supposed to be a blessing to them. And so Abraham, the last time he was in a high-stress situation where things were going awry, not according to his own plan, he got a big fat F all the way around. But what we notice in Genesis chapter 14, by the time we get to Genesis 14, there's something that has changed inside the heart of Abraham. And rather than panicking and not trusting God, Abraham has a totally different response in Genesis 14. He actually responds in faith to the situation as it unfolds in front of him. He responds in faith. And and this is what the faith-filled response of Abraham looks like in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. One of the survivors, they came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks, belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken a prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night. They attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. And he brought back all of his goods and all of his relative lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Now, this situation, this is just part one of the faith-filled response of Abraham to this situation, okay? We will get into part two next week in the back half of Genesis 14. But I want you to see three things in part one of the faith-filled response of Abraham to the situation that's unfolding in front of him, this massive war that has broken out around him. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is how Abraham doesn't. Respond. Notice how Abraham doesn't respond to the war and the chaos that has happened uh, in Genesis chapter 14. First, he doesn't respond to self-pity. Abraham does not respond in self-pity. He doesn't feel sorry for himself and kind of sulk around the house, just lamenting how this war affects him personally and how it affects his plans and his happiness and his life. His eyes are not glued on himself. And this is very different than how he responded in Genesis chapter 12. His eyes were only on himself in Genesis 12. When, when he had this rough patch with the Egyptians, all he seemed to care about was what they might do to him, how it affected him. But he doesn't do that here. His eyes are very quickly on Lot, not on himself. He also doesn't respond in self-protection. He doesn't just seek to preserve his own life. Now, war is a great time to think about protecting ourselves. 
but he's not dominated by self-preservation. The last time we saw him in this type of situation, he absolutely was. He, he throws his own wife into harm's way because he's only thinking about preserving his own life, but not here. Abraham, instead, he, he, he takes a calculated risk to protect somebody else's life. To help someone else. He's not just operating in self-protection, but also notice that in the faith-filled response of Abraham, he is not led to inaction. In his faith-filled response, it does not lead to inaction. He doesn't just sit around waiting for for God to do something or or waiting for the uh, situation to unfold. He takes bold action. I think sometimes we equate trusting God with doing nothing. Like, right, wait, if I do anything, that's not faith. What faith looks like is inaction. And I would say, sometimes, sometimes that's absolutely the case. We need to just wait patiently. But inaction is not equivalent to faith. If you remember the very call of Abraham from the very beginning, it was a call to action, a call to go. And God had all of these promises to deliver the land. But just because God had promised to deliver the land to Abraham, did that mean there was no action God was calling him to? Absolutely not. Inaction is not equivalent to faith. Sometimes God is calling us into action by faith. And so Abraham here, as God's plan is unfolding around him, and it's war and it's chaos, he does not respond with inaction, but instead he responds with bold actions that actually make sense in view of God's promises And in view of the circumstances that are unfolding according to the plan of God. Faith is not supposed to lead us to inaction, but instead to action that makes sense. In view of the promises of God, in view of the word of God, and in view of the plan of God that is unfolding in front of us. So notice, Abraham did not respond in self-pity, self-protection, or inaction. But also, I want you to notice this. Notice how Abraham does respond. Notice how he does respond as the plan of God is unfolding in front of him in real life, in real time. It says this in Genesis 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken a prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, attacked them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Abraham, the faith-filled response of Abraham is to take trained men, men who are actually skilled for the task that they have in front of them. And they go and they pursue them. And they attack these evil men in order to protect and bring back Lot and the women and the children and the men who are with them. And I'm not saying this is like the template for how we respond to every physical confrontation in our lives. But what I'm saying is the faithful response of Abraham, it was not to sit and do nothing nor to sulk and feel sorry for himself, or to freak out and start yelling at people around him, or to get really angry and curse God 
and blame other people or to feel like God doesn't care. His faithful response was not to assume that God's plan to bless the nations through him was being thwarted. Instead, his faith-filled response leads him to do exactly what made sense in view of the promises of God, the word of God, and the plan of God that was unfolding in real time, in real life, right in front of him. Faith-filled response of Abraham, it was not to be anxious, high stress, yelling at everybody, assuming this is interrupting God's glorious plan. But instead, the faithful response of Abraham is to embrace the reality of God's plan as he is unfolding it in front of Abraham. Though it looked very differently than I'm sure how Abraham would have scripted it in his mind. And to embrace not only the plan of God, but the responsibility that God had given him. And to respond in ways that make sense. In view of his promises and in view of God's plan that's unfolding. You said at the very beginning, the big idea is this. God's plan is unfolding, not yours. But you can trust his plan. And you see, God's plan isn't your plan. You you can seek the Lord and you should seek the Lord as you make plans. Have plans. But don't trust Him. And don't assume that when things go differently than your plans, that the plan of God is somehow being thwarted. Instead, recognize God's plan is thwarting your plan and you can trust him in it you know i doubt very much that if any of us were trying to write the script of how this great blessing to the nations was going to unfold that we would script war into the story but god's plans are not our plans god's ways are not our ways god's ways are higher than our ways god's thoughts are greater than our thoughts loftier than our thoughts I doubt very much that if any of us were trying to script out this beautiful, glorious, majestic plan to bring salvation to the world, that any of us is writing into that script the crucifixion, the betrayal of Christ. You see, God's plan is not your plan. God's ways are not your ways. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His are higher and greater and far better than anything that we could ever plan ourselves. God's plan is unfolding in the world and in your life. And you can trust Him. Here's what that means. It means we don't have to freak out. When when things unfold differently than we hope or plan or expect or think that they should, we we don't have to dictate everything. We, we don't have to respond in anger or stress or frustration when things don't go the way that we think they should. You don't have to try to control everything. You, you don't have to make sure that everything goes the way that you think that it should. You don't have to manipulate. 
You don't have to manipulate to get your way. You don't have to manipulate to make sure that life and the world unfolds according to your plans. You don't have to manipulate or control your kids, your friends, your spouse, your circumstances. You don't have to try to control everything. And that doesn't mean that we should take no action, have no plans, or sit on our hands. It simply means that in faith we can joyfully embrace the circumstances that God brings into our lives. And then what we can do is we can joyfully walk in obedience to Him and to His Word in the midst of every single circumstance that He delivers. It's his plan that is unfolding in our lives. And when life goes differently than you hope or expect, don't assume the plan of God is being thwarted. Instead, assume your plan is being thwarted by the plan of God. So joyfully embrace it and walk in obedience to him. By faith, we can trust him. Last thing I want you to see is this. So notice how Abraham doesn't respond. Notice how Abraham does respond. But lastly, I want you to notice why Abraham responds the way that he does. Here's the deal. In order to really see this, to get into the heart of Abraham and really understand why does he respond in faith this way, what we are going to need to do is get into the second part of the passage, which is exactly what we will do next week. Okay? And we're going to see how all of this, how, how this faith-filled response of Abraham, how it all actually ultimately points us to Jesus Christ in some incredible ways. And it'll be a lot of fun when we do it. But that's what we'll do next week. So come on back next week and join us as we continue in the book of Genesis and in Genesis 14. But let me just close with one practical application for you. Repent wherever necessary of any unbelief in the plan of God. Repent wherever necessary. If there is any unbelief or distrust or discontentment with the plan of God unfolding in your life. Here's what I mean by that. And this is such a big deal. When life unfolds differently than we expect or hope, when life does not go according to the way that we desired it to, or that we were hoping it would, or that we expected, or when things happen that confuse us, or anger us, or hurt us deeply, it is very easy to feel like God's plan is not playing out, or that God's plan is not good. And to just tuck bitterness into our hearts over and over again. Just tuck bitterness into our hearts. And through that, we can hit the eject button on our relationships with God's people. Never reconcile over hurts. Or we can hit the eject button on the mission of God. Or we can hit the eject button on letting anybody behind the walls of our hearts And what we can do is we can start to live our lives from a permanent position of self-pity, self-preservation, and self-justification. We anchor ourselves in self-pity, self-preservation, 
Self-justification. We start to live that way permanently as we tuck more and more bitterness into our hearts rather than living a faith-filled, joyful life, taking calculated risks in the Lord in obedience to Him. Okay, And if that's where you're at in life, then what you need to do is this. We need to repent of that unbelief, of that distrust in our good Heavenly Father. We need to turn away from that distrust. We can't keep sowing more and more to that distrust and expect it's going to lead to life. It's not. It's just going to anchor us in that permanent state of self-pity, self-preservation, or self-justification. Okay, we need to turn away from that distrust, turn away from that unbelief, and towards our Heavenly Father. We need to turn towards faith in His plan, in His promises, however it is unfolding in our lives. We need to embrace it as His plan, as His good, perfect, and pleasing will. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, he points out something that's incredibly insightful. He says, even in in, in this joyful Christian life, there is grief. There is absolutely sorrow, but he says this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This life, yes, there is grief, but, but through repentance, as we turn away from distrusting God, as we turn away from a heart that does not trust in the Lord, And as we turn towards God himself in faith, trusting in him, it leads us to this place of experiencing salvation without regret. It's it's real life in the Lord. But worldly grief produces death. Do you know what worldly grief? Do do you see what worldly grief skips over? Repentance. We miss the turn. And worldly grief, it only leads us to death. Worldly grief... It only anchors us further in self-pity, self-preservation, protecting ourselves, hiding behind the walls, or self-justification. We have reasons for why we're not really going to joyfully walk in trust in the Lord. You see, life, it has bumps and bruises. Life will not unfold according to your plans. No matter what you do to try to control, manipulate, whatever it might be, Life will not cooperate with your plans because it is busy unfolding according to the good, wonderful, pleasing plan of God, which isn't the script you would write in a million years. No matter how spiritually mature you are, there are going to be times of sorrow in your life as you walk in the plan of God. There just, there will be times of grief. But you see, those times of grief and suffering and sorrow, they are often what God is using to produce the greatest treasures in our lives. The greatest joys, the the, the greatest ways of pointing to His goodness. And the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, as we walk in God's plan for our lives, is repentance. Godly sorrow recognizes 
where we need to turn away from our distrust, turn away from our bitterness, turn away from our self-pity, and towards the Lord, trusting in Him, trusting in His plan. Worldly sorrow skips right over the turn, misses the turn, and leads us into death. Only greater grief. And my encouragement for you is this. Seek the Lord on where you need repentance. To turn away from distrust and turn to Him. Our Heavenly Father, He is good.